You know, we recently went through a study in, uh, on Sunday mornings, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and in there uh, we learned a lot of awesome stuff about the end times and uh, a prophesied event called the rapture, which is that time when Jesus comes to remove his church from the earth. And uh, we learned there is no prophetic event that must occur before the rapture could happen. It could happen anytime, at any moment, even right this second. So, because Jesus, I mean, it could like just gone. And because his return is imminent, we need to be ready. Uh, Jesus told us that himself in Matthew 24, 44. He said, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not expect. And if you're not ready, you'll be left, left behind and go through the great tribulation, seven years of horror, like it's never been on the face of the earth. Um, there are actually two ways you can avoid the great tribulation. Number one is to be raptured, taken out of here by Jesus. But the other way is to die before the rapture happens. Now, in that case, if you're not ready, you don't go through seven years of horror. You go straight to hell if you're not ready. So um, either way, we, you and I both need to be ready, whichever comes first. So hopefully tonight's Bible study will help with that. Now, Jesus doesn't say be ready and then just leave us hanging. He uh, gives us four stories immediately after that verse, Matthew 25, I mean 24, 44. That's where we're going to be tonight, starting there. He gives us four stories that um, in this section that paint pictures of what a person who is ready and not ready for Jesus' return looks like. And, and I personally like to refer, once I discovered it, man, it, it just really helped me so much. I like to refer to this section of Scripture as the Be Ready Parables. And um, hopefully, um, you know, these, we have, okay. Before we get into them, though, uh, let's get some background. Matthew is a transitional book. It's a transitional book between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, it was written by a Jewish man to the Jewish people, and he connects the Old Testament covenants and promises and prophecies with the New Testament realities. And the main point of Matthew is that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. He's the king of the Jews, and he quotes the Old Testament 125 times to try and make his point. Matthew 24, which we're going to start in tonight, Jesus has been answering two questions that his Jewish disciples ask him after he prophesied to them that the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. Those two questions were, when is that going to happen? And second one is, what will be the sign of your coming to take over as king in the end of the age? His answer is mostly directed to Jewish followers regarding the Great Tribulation and the time leading up to it in, the next in that chapter. It's mostly directed to the Jewish people. Um, the parables we lo we'll look at tonight have very specific applications to the Jewish people. Um, we're not going to get into that. We're going to leave that for Tyler to cover in some future Bible study. But there are very practical applications about being ready for Jesus' return for all Christians, not just Jewish Christians, that can be gleaned from these four parables, and those are the things we want to look at. Um, 
some more background before we get into them. It's important to remember, this is very important. This is just setting the stage here. It's important to remember as we look at the Be Ready parables is that a person cannot be ready for the rapture or death unless he or she has believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't be ready. There's no way you can be ready. Now, gospel means good news, but before you know the good news, you got to know the bad news. And that is that we're all sinners in rebellion against, well, our righteous, holy, perfect, good, loving creator God. And we deserve to die and go to hell. And that's just, to me, the most obvious thing in the world. But you know what? There are many who refuse to acknowledge that fact. But the good news here is, the good news of the gospel is, God still loves you. He does, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our sin, and He made a way for your sin to be dealt with. I love that. He sent His Son, Jesus, to the earth as a substitute sacrifice on our behalf. And God, I mean, Jesus died in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. And He proved this was true by raising Jesus from the dead. And through Jesus' death on the cross and sacrifice of His blood and body, every sin of every person who ever lived on the earth is forgiven. Praise the Lord. I mean, that's good news right there, guys. Every sin. For someone to receive the forgiveness uh, and be reconciled to God, three things must occur in a person's life. And... I have to emphasize, these are musts. These must happen. Jesus said in Luke 13, verse 3, unless you repent, you're all likewise going to perish. The group of people they were talking about. We have to turn away from our sin. We have to renounce it. We have to say, I don't want to sin anymore. And when we turn away from our sin, we have to turn to God. We have to turn to Jesus, to the gospel, and believe in it. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, that we believe on Him whom God sent. We've got to believe in Him. And then the last thing is, you must be born again. Jesus said that in John chapter 3, verse 3. Unless one is born again, he will not, hear me, he will not see the kingdom of God. So important. As we'll see in tonight's study, the last must, being born again, let me tell you, it's very misunderstood. I've been out there, gone to a lot of different churches, and, and it's misunderstood, and it's ignored, and it's dangerous. Many people repent and believe, but they're never born again. And if a person is not born again, they're not ready for, the de for death or the rapture. That's just the bottom line. When a person does repent and believe in the gospel, God does an incredible miracle in them where their rebellious spirit dies and Jesus' Holy Spirit comes to live with him in, within him or her. This is what it means to be born again. And Paul said it really well in Galatians chapter 2, 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. God gives us more detail as to what happens when a per person is born again in Hebrews chapter 8, when God says, I will put my laws in their minds, and write them on their hearts. And, they will be, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other, each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, 
from the least to the greatest. When a person is born again, two things happen. Number one, God writes his laws in their mind and their heart by the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is within you, and now he's written his laws in there, the things he wants you to do. And number two, this is really cool, you know God personally. Everybody knows him, not just the big boss. Then he'll let us know what God's saying. No, from the least to the greatest. Isn't that awesome? So when we're born again, this is really cool. God does not actually ask you to change what you do. You know what he does? By this miracle of being born, he changes what you want to do. He changes it within you. And he writes his laws in our hearts and minds. And since we know him personally, he guides us directly through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. Being born again is not, this is very important regarding these parables. Being born again is not something we can gain through our efforts, through good works, through being good people, through keeping rules, keeping the law. But you know what? There are people who believe that you can do that. Jesus tells us about a group in in Matthew 7. He says, Many will say to me in that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, listen to this, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people who believe you can gain salvation through good good works will try and make the actions we're going to see tonight in the people in these parables They're going to try and make these actions a new law. That's what we all do. And that's exactly what we don't want to do. Okay? This is important. Coming towards these. Hear me. Works do not save you. All right? Works do not save you. It is a gift of God that we receive. Our salvation is as we repent, believe, and are born again. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. But Paul tells us in the very next verse, saved people will do works. How can a person, here's the question, he he says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But the question comes, how can a person maintain the balance of not working to earn salvation, but still do good works? I'm telling you, that is a struggle. There's a tension. It's, it's hard. How do we do that? The Lord helped us out. We get a hint. Romans chapter 8, verse 2. This is an awesome verse. I'm looking, this is like one of my favorite verses in Romans. And I, I really just discovered it in my life in the last couple of years. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's an incredible verse, guys. This law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus at work within a person who's born again, um, frees us from trying to earn our salvation through good works. We, we don't have to look at some external rules or things we got to keep anymore. We're free because this, work, this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is within us, having been born again. Um, and here's the deal. Not only that, it sets us free to do good, do good works with proper motivation not in pride not to earn god's favor or whatever but just our our motivation becomes love for god not self and that love and that love flowing out of our hearts in very practical ways to other people 
Um, the only way a person can do good works from proper motivation and in a righteous and acceptable way before God is through faith in the, in the gospel and being born again. A couple more verses that are going to help us really uh, set up the Be Ready Parables. One is Romans 8, 14. Another, you, I love Romans 8. I, I can't wait till we get there with Tyler on Sunday mornings. Romans 8, 14 says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Amen. And Colossians 3, 15 says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. These verses tell us that through the Holy Spirit's leading and through having His peace as the deciding factor in your decisions, God will guide you moment by moment. You know, Zach talked about that about a month ago. The conversation, that ongoing conversation you have with God. I, I just love that. We see Jesus as our example of this in John chapter 5, verse 19. He's talking about himself and his relationship to the Father and how he determines what he's going to do. Listen to this verse. The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he, the Father, does... The Son also does in like manner. Now, uh, John Corson, I really like what he has to say about this. He says, this is Christianity in its essence. It's not rules, principles, or regulations. It's walking with the Lord moment by moment, saying constantly, Lord, how do I deal with this situation? What do I do? It's as though the Lord gives us broad principles in the Word. And then he says, See me for further instructions. Amen. Talk to me about specific application. You know, James 1.5 says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask only of God, who giveth to all, man, all men generously. He will show you what to do, and it will be right. Praise the Lord. Praise God. A person who has repented and believed and been born again and is being led by God's Spirit and his love, and by the word of God at work in his or her life to do the good works God has prepared beforehand for him or her to do, is ready for the kingdom of God. They're ready. What we will see in the Be Ready parables are pictures of what a, be re a person who is ready will look like in action, contrasted with someone who's not ready. They're pictures they're in action, like we said. I'm reading my slides. Sorry, guys. So what is a parable? This is the last thing before we get into them. Parable in the Greek, it means to throw alongside of. Therefore, a parable is a story that is thrown alongside a truth being taught to help the listener better understand. Parables are not intended to build intricate systems of theology upon, and they're generally to teach one main point, a principle using everyday situations that the people of Jesus' time would be familiar with, and they use a lot of biblical symbolism and typology. Um, Matthew chapter 13, verse 10 through 17, Jesus gives us the two main purposes of parables. I read in verse 11 there, It has been given to you, born again, disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not who? The people who aren't born again. The people who aren't following the Lord. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Jesus uses parables, number one, to reveal 
the mysteries of the kingdom of God to those who really want to know, to those who are born again and can know. That's what he uses, and it heightens your understanding. It illumines things. But he also uses them, it says here in these verses, to conceal it to people who really don't care, which is kind of a merciful thing. You know, we're going to be judged for what we know. And so the Lord says, hey, if you ain't going to, I don't want, I, you know, I'm going to be merciful. And I don't want you to be judged too much because if you know too much, you're going to be in trouble. But it's kind of like math. If you know your multiplication tables, then, it ain't, then you can move on to algebra, trig, geometry. But if you don't know them, man, you ain't going nowhere with that algebra. <laughs> you got to know them. The same thing with the parables. If you're not born again, guys, you just ain't going to get them. I mean, you can't, you can't build on something you don't have. But if you, if, if you don't have them, you won't understand. Amen. And Jesus says you'll lose what you do have. So um, now we're ready to get into the parables. Cool. Amen. Starting in chapter 24 of Matthew, verse 45, this parable is the parable of the wise and faithful servant and the wicked servant. Who then is the fruitful and wise, faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. This is Jesus speaking. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servant and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's a cast of characters in this parable. And for practical application and time's sake, let's define who they really are. Faithful and wise servant is a born-again Christian who's ready for Jesus' return. Wicked servant is a person who's not ready. The master is Jesus. The master's household are people who are spiritually hungry. Servant's task, feed the master's household. The drunkards are people whose priorities are getting into and getting off on the things of this world. Hypocrites are people who say they've repented and believed in Jesus, but they really haven't. In the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, well, that's hell. But what does the food represent? Interesting question. After Jesus had fed the 5,000, those he had fed sought him out in Capernaum, and when he found them, he told them, when they found him, he told them in John chapter 6, verse 26 and 27, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Then later, in John chapter 6, verse 55, he lets us know exactly what the food is. His the food is his flesh, in, his flesh is food indeed, and his blood is drink indeed. Now when the people began to complain at the thought of consuming his flesh and his blood, Jesus qualified that statement in John 66, 63. He said, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh, I like what it says in the New King James Version, profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit. And they are alive. Therefore, the food that we are to feed others with is a spiritual food. And it gives eternal life. It is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. Unbelievers 
must be given this food of the gospel to be saved. If we don't give it to them, they will die and go to hell. That's just the bottom line. Bottom line, Steve, back with you. But there is an additional spiritual food we have to offer. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found. This is another one of my verses I love. Your words were found, and I ate them. And they came, became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. <laughs> the other spiritual food, the additional food, it's the Word of God. That's our chow, guys. Spiritually, that's what we're to eat. Romans 10, 17 tells us, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's how God grows our faith. Is as we get in the Word, He strengthens us. He sets us apart. It says in John 77, Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. That's how, he, that's how He grows us up. And you know what? To grow up, we need a balanced diet. We don't need you know, a little bit here, a little piece there. We need the whole of Scripture. Amen. A balanced diet that is provided by the whole of Scripture. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The whole of Scripture teaches us doctrine. What's that? That's what to believe. It teaches us reproof. What's that? That's what not to believe. It gives us instruction. What's that? That's how to live. It gives us cor uh, correction. What's that? That's how not to live. So what to believe, what not to believe. How to live, how not to live. That's everything. Amen. You know? And, and so it makes us complete. And if we aren't, we're incomplete. That is why at Calvary Chapel... We emphasize expositional, verse-by-verse -verse teaching through the whole Bible. That's the point. We believe like A.W. Tozer. Nothing less than a whole Bible will make a whole Christian. As born-again believers, we desire to hear God's voice, to hear God speak to us, uh, that He would lead God and direct us. And though God can speak to us in a lot of different ways, guys, I've found that 99% of the time, the way God speaks to us is through His Word. And you can look all over. Just open up your Bible. And, God, and, and, and within, well, we'll talk about that. I mean, He could speak to you through other ways, but, you know, what He says to you through other will not contradict what the Bible says. Therefore, it's so important to be reading the Word on a regular basis with anticipation that the Lord will speak to us. When you come to the Word, open it up, expect. That's what I used to tell my third through fifth graders. We'd give them their Bible. We'd say, hey, open it up, read along. And if you're anticipating, if you're asking, He will begin to speak to you Himself. And that's how He works. Now, the wise and faithful servant is ready for Jesus' return as he is seeking God by getting into His Word. And as he gets to know God through His Word, he is sharing that truth that he receives with others. And in verse 47, we read that Jesus will put such a one over all his goods. He's ready. This guy, this born-again guy is into the Word. In contrast, the wicked servant, he knew what to, he was supposed to be doing, but he didn't do it. Why? I, I say to you, it's because he wasn't born again. He didn't have that desire in his heart. He, he wanted to do what he wanted to do. He says the master's delaying his return. It's dangerous, which indicates the wicked servant probably wasn't into the Word. Probably didn't know the Word of God, or he was ignoring it. 
Or he was like that notorious sinner, W.C. Fields, who, when found reading a Bible one day and asked why he was doing that, said, looking for loopholes. That's, how a lot of, that's why a lot of people read the Word. This guy also, Peter said, people will twist it to fit what they want to their own destruction. For whatever reason, the wicked servant didn't have a sense of urgency or expectation that the Lord would be turning at any moment, and he felt he had time, and he could skip on what God wanted to do and do what he really wanted to do, and he turns on his fellow servants and begins to attack them. To which I respond, where's the love, bro? You know, because that's the sign we're going to be known by, loving each other. Amen. This guy instead, he's pounding on the people who are supposed to be his brothers and sisters. <laughs> Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you, have, if you, love, if you have love for one another. We will know true believers by the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. It will especially be evidenced by the love we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And sadly, this dude is looking like a bogus believer. And when someone is not a true believer who worships God, let me tell you, then the faithfulness of others can be very convicting. You won't like it. We can become like Cain, like it was with Cain. What did he do? He killed his brother. Why? Because Cain's own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The wicked servant, servant starts getting into the things of the world, partying with the world, and John warned us about that, didn't he? Love not, do not love the world or the things of this world, 1 John chapter 2. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let me read that again. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. It's going away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The things of the world, what is that? Lust of the flesh, that's feeding your flesh's cravings. You know, the lust of the eyes, that's greed. That's wanting material possessions. It's getting stuff. Getting off, getting stuff. And pride, that's being independent of God. I don't need God. You know, it's more important to me to be cool, to be confident, to be considered by others. That's the things of this world, guys, and they're passing away. And if we love that stuff, well, you know, many give lip service to faith in God and the gospel, but these temporary things end up being their priorities. Not good. Because the wicked servant doesn't know the Lord, he makes a big mistake getting into things that are passing away instead of the Lord, and he ends up suffering the fate of unbelievers, being cut in pieces, put with the hypocrites in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, also known as hell. He ultimately is exposed as a hypocrite and an unbeliever. Wow. Now, tough passage on that guy, but if you uh, find yourself identifying with the wicked servant, let me tell you something. Go to God about it right now. Amen. Don't waste time. Humble yourself. Repent, believe, be forgiven, and be born again. Do not delay. Do not. Do it now. So in this first parable, we see that 
born-again believer who is ready, not wasting his time getting into the things of this world, but having faith in God, spending his time getting to know God through his word, and then sharing his word and the gospel with others. The rapture ready are into God's word and sharing it with others. We see that picture. All right, second uh, be ready parable. The ten virgins, Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. But when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. And the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, and Listen to this, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Cast of characters, the ten virgins, those are followers of Jesus. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. And the marriage feast? Well, it's a celebration in heaven following the rapture. How do we know what the lamp is symbolic of? Many of you old time, well, we don't have any, hardly any old time. That's what I like about this place. We don't have any. A ton of old-timers in here. <laughs> many, many, Karen could sing it. What is the, what, what is the lamp? Amy, Amy Grant sang about it. <coughs> Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light. You know it. Psalm 119, 105. The lamp is the word of God. But in this parable, we see that just having the lamp of the word, listen, is not enough to make us ready for Jesus' return. If you just got the word, you ain't ready. We have, to have the, we have to have oil for our lamps. So what is the oil symbolic of in Old Testament typology? We find that in Zechariah 4.6, a big Calvary Chapel verse, I'll tell you. The Lord tells the nation of Israel that they cannot accomplish the tasks he has given them to do by their own power and might, by their own strength and effort, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he, this is seen or symbolized in a vision the prophet sees of oil. Basically, there's two oil olive trees and oil is just pouring out of them into a gigantic golden menorah. And the golden menorah is symbolic of the nation Israel. So that oil flowing in is the oil of the Holy Spirit. Like the wise virgins, we must have both the lamp of God's word and the oil of the Holy Spirit in order to be ready for our bridegroom Jesus to return. A couple of verses here help us understand. John 4, 23 and 24, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. You remember the story. And he tells her, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then Jesus said in chapter 17, verse 17 of John, we already read it one time. He said, your word is truth. Unfortunately today... 
Very sad. We find the church as a whole very divided over the word and the spirit. One side emphasizes the spirit. Let me tell you guys, I've been in churches like that. They have no interest in the word whatsoever. There are other churches. Man, they got the word, but they don't have the spirit. They resist them. They give lip service, but they resist them and quench them at every turn. Both sides are half right, but unfortunately, wrong. ultimately wrong. And you know what? Not appearing based on this parable to be ready. That's scary. A lot of churches like that. We saw from the first parable, we must be into the Word and sharing it with others, but we also must have the Spirit within us. The lamp of God's Word cannot light our way unless the Holy Spirit, the oil of the Holy Spirit, illumines its meaning for us. Let me tell you, I grew up in a legalistic group, never heard the gospel, but we read the Bible, and I knew the Bible. You know, I knew the Word of God, but I didn't know the God of the Word by His Spirit. When I, got, when I was born again, in January 1987, that Spirit came to dwell within me. That Bible just went, whoom! It was like colors. Whoa! What it meant just came alive to me. Amen. The Holy I, It was incredible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 tells us, the natural, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they've been spiritually discerned. And 1 John 2, 27 adds that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. When it says the anointing, symbolic of oil, anointing oil, the anointing that you receive from God abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Okay, Steve, what are you doing up there in the pulpit? <laughs> we don't need anybody to teach us. Well, I got to spew the words. And then from within you born again folks, the Holy Spirit goes, you hear that? That's the truth. Amen. He's teaching. He's teaching. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just being faithful. He's teaching you right now. If you're hearing this. But as his anointing, the Holy Spirit teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in Jesus. And in John 16, 13, Jesus tells us, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So to know the word... That we've been called to share with others, we must have the Holy Spirit as our teacher and God. And we cannot understand the word in and of ourselves. We must be born again. Many Christians today, unfortunately, are like followers of the John the Baptist, who, when encountering Paul in Acts chapter 19, they told him, we have not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Romans 8 9 tells us, Anyone, listen to this, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Jesus. How do we get the Holy Spirit within us? How do we become born again? It is a miracle God works within us as we repent and believe and follow the directions that Jesus gives us in Luke 11, 9-13. You know it. Tyler talks about it a lot. Jesus is talking, he says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For anyone, everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You know, guys, we must, in the faith, as we're instructed, the faith we're instructed to have in Hebrews 11, verse 6, we must have faith in God, and He will reward us with the gift of the Holy Spirit within us as we diligently seek Him. I like what Troy said when he was here, Pastor Troy, um, Tyler's dad. His main point was you got to get desperate. you got to be diligent. you got to, look, God's looking for somebody who, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. That's what you got to do in your life. Hey, isn't God worth it? And what else you got to do? You know, everything else is a waste. So we'll find out. Man, go for God. Don't quit till you get Him. He, and He, man, he, if you draw near to God, boom, He's going to come to you. Amen. With a pure heart, if you draw near to Him, He will. <laughs> How does one know if they've been born again? Well, I think maybe the best way, I always tell people this. The best way is to ask yourself the question, what do I really want to do? Do I want to do what I want to do? And, you know, oh, i got to do what God wants me to do. Or is there something going on in here? I want to do what God wants me to do. My flesh keeps getting in the way. Because when you're born again, hey, i ch- I got to tell you, when I was born again, I changed. I wanted to do, man, I mess up still all the time. Just ask Al. <laughs> but the thing is, I want to serve Jesus. I want to do what God wants me to do. Notice the bridegroom's response, and this should give you a clue, you know. Notice his response to the unwise virgins when they return and seek to enter the wedding feast. What does he say? I do not know you. And that's, that's, knowing God is part of the new covenant. They all shall know me from the least to the great. The rapture ready. Know God because they're born again. And are filled with, led, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. All right, be ready parable number three. The talents. And these are not like physical abilities. These are, well, you'll see. Matthew 25, 14. Jesus is describing, you know, being ready and that's, uh, you know, how to be in. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want to hear that someday? Amen. Well done. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I've made two more, two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful. He says the same thing to the five talent guy. The two talents, he did the five. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will set you over much, enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, 
I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid my tail on the ground. Here, have what is yours. His master answered and said, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I've not sown and gathered where I scattered seed. Then you ought to invest in my money with the bankers. And my coming should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the, him who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. And the place where there will be gnash, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of course, we know where that is. But who's the man going on a journey? It's Jesus. His servants... You know, Jesus has ascended to the Father, and he gave gifts to us. He gave us stuff. Jesus' servants and the guy's servants are Jesus' followers. And the man's property is whatever Jesus has given a person. That's his property. Tyler said it this past. He owns everything. And a talent, well, that's the unit of measure. It's not necessarily an ability. It can be, but it's a unit of measure, and it's a significant amount. Like, it, it was a lot of money back then, you know, several thousand dollars in today's. And so Jesus has ascended to heaven for the time being and has given us things. Money, what's he given us? Money, possessions, abilities, times, etc. I mean, spiritual gifts. And, you know, we are responsible for, for, for them while he is gone. He has given us different amounts of things and levels of responsibility based on our abilities. And he wants us to be productive with what... He has given us. Doing good works for God's glory is what we were created to do in Christ Jesus. We've read that um, from Ephesians 2.10. To seek to advance, listen to this, to seek to advance and grow God's kingdom with what he has given us is the nat natural tendency of a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. You just want to do it. When you're born again, the desire of your heart becomes... To do what God, to please God, not yourself. We said works don't save you, but the saved work. We see the first two servants just following their hearts and seeking to further the kingdom of God, whatever they do. They know the Lord personally. They love and trust Him. They want to please Him. And when they receive the goods, look at that, they just go right to work. You don't have to tell them. They just love God. And they just want to. They want to help. They're ready. The wicked, lazy servants have different reactions to what the Lord gives us. They bury them. They never use them. Then they make excuses. I'm afraid of you. You're a hard God. I didn't want to mess up, so I didn't do anything. But here's the deal. Excuses are a cover-up for sin. Let me tell you something. God, hear me, God is not hard. Amen. He's not. That shows the guy doesn't know him. The master in the parable is not agreeing with the wicked, lazy servants to Scripture him. He's not doing that, but he is acknowledging that's the way the wicked, lazy servant sees him. And the reason being, he doesn't know him. In reality, God is loving, he's gracious, he's merciful. Well, Steve, that may be Jesus, but that God in the Old Testament, he, he ain't like that. Oh, really? Let me read you something. At one point during the wilderness journey, Moses told God he was desperate to know him. He said, show me your glory. And so God took Moses and put him in the cleft of the rock, like the song we sing. 
covered him with his hand, walked by him, and he proclaimed, listen to this, who does this sound like? The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. I mean, by no means clearing the guilty, the unrepentant, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That sounds a lot like Jesus to me. God is only scary to those who need to be afraid of him. Unrepentant sinners in rebellion against him and headed for hell. It is true. The beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He's God. We need to respect that. But as we repent and believe, tell me this is not true, guys. As we repent and believe and are born again and begin to get to know him and experience his love and mercy and grace, that fear turns to what? Trust. And love becomes our motivation as we realize how much God is for us, not against us. Amen? Amen. You might say, Steve, I do love God. I want to serve him. But I'm shy. Or I'm afraid of messing up, making a mistake, failing. To you, I say, take a chance. Step out in faith. Even, even if it's just to strike up a conversation with your neighbor and, and during the course of your discussion, just kind of work it in there that you believe in Jesus, you're a Christian. You know, begin to kind of be a witness for him. Fear of failure for the Christian is lack of faith. Because God's going to cause you to succeed. He will. We give Peter a hard time because his guy had his eyes off Jesus and started to sink when Jesus called him out of the boat to walk on the water. Don't we go, oh, Peter, I can't believe that. But you know what? At least he got out of the boat, right? He had the faith to do it, and that's what we got to do. We need to become adventurous for Jesus, or as Pastor Chuck used to always tell us. He said, take ventures in faith. That's what we're all about here. Chuck would say, hey, if you step out and it doesn't work, just step back and try another direction. Amen. Trust the Lord. Pray and ask Him to give you direction. Let His Spirit and peace guide you. Or do what Jesus said to the, the wicked and lazy servant should have done. Put whatever talents of stuff that God has given you in the bank called the church. Banks are supposed to take the money we put in them and make it grow, produce interest. Or at least that's what they used to do. The interest rates are pretty low these days, right? But likewise, a faithful, a faithful fellowship knows how to use the things God has given you to grow his kingdom. If you will deposit those things at their disposal. Even if it's just cleaning up or doing some simple tests like handing somebody a bottle of water. Amen. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, you will in no wise lose your reward if you give somebody a cup of water. Because you're his disciple. You won't, you won't even lose your reward for that. As you're faithful to do them, other opportunities to grow God's kingdom come out of your efforts. And you never know what will happen. Let me, let me tell you, when I first deposited my stuff in the bank of the, of, uh, called the church, and they sent me down the hall to the first and second graders. <laughs> 26 high-energy kids crawling on top and under the tables and scrapping with each other like kids that age are, you know... They'll do it. But I want to tell you what the interest produced from putting me put in, put in the assets of my life in the spiritual bank called church made it all worth it. 
Godly men and women grew out of those classes. Pastor, couple pastors. Praise the Lord. Amen. You know, and I, I was just a dude saying, hey, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> and God's kingdom was expanded. Praise the Lord. There's an incredible side benefit to serving the Lord in the church. I have learned from experience there's no greater, more enjoyable fellowship than serving together alongside brothers and sisters in Christ. Fellowship that results when we serve together is such a blessing that God, and God loves to see His children working together and join each other. And like any father who loves his children, he will shower his blessing on that. He'll do it. So, what do we learn from Be Ready Parable 3? The rapture ready. Trust God. This is what they're going to do just because of who they are. This is them, the born-again believer in action. They trust God and use whatever He has given them to further His kingdom. Number four, we're rolling. Matthew 25, 31, the, the, the sheep and the goats here, guys. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared beforehand from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. A stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. Sick, and you visited me. Was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When, when did we see a stranger and welcome you, naked and clothe you? When did we see a sick and in prison and visit you? And Jesus will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. It's good to envision. Doing something for people, man. You're doing it for Jesus. You're doing it to Jesus. The king will answer them, truly I say, uh, I'm sorry, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire. Prepared, man, do you guys see, man, the stakes are high. Amen. Why do we mess around? Why are there so many people who aren't turning and believing? This is true. This is true. This is going to happen. And Jesus is going to say this to people. Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison? Did not minister to you. Then you will answer them saying, truly I say to you, you did not do it unto the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. You know, this parable is probably about, most scholars agree, a judgment that's going to occur at the end of the Great Tribulation. There's a period, Daniel talks about it, from the uh, 1,290th day to the 1,335th day. He says, if you make it through that period, you're doing good. <laughs> Some judging going on in there, I think. Some sheep and some goats being separated. The angels are going to assist Jesus in bringing all the survivors of the great tribulation before his throne to be judged. The sheep are people who have acted unselfishly towards others who are struggling and are 
And these sheep are ready for the Lord's return, but the goat, the opposite. They've ignored people. They've been selfish. They haven't ministered to people who are struggling, and they're not ready for the Lord's return. Now, in this particular situation, the Jews are probably who Jesus is referring to as his brothers. Remember I told you this passage had a very specific implication, I mean, application to the Jews. But there are many as Christians that we could consider brothers. Let's think about it. Number one, brother in the Greek means brother, near or far, an immediate family member or a distant relative. Jesus did, not, did come from the same womb as four other men, his stepbrothers, James, Jude, Joseph, and Simon. And Jesus was a Jew, so anyone who is a Jew would be considered his brother in that sense, family sense. Mark 3.35, Jesus tells us, whoever, whoever does the will of God is his brother. Jesus says that. And in John 20.17, Jesus calls the disciples his brothers. And Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. You know that verse. John chapter 1, verse 14. He became human, just like us. So in a sense... Based on the idea of the brotherhood of all humans because we were, cre- we were created children of God, it could be said every person who has ever walked on the face of the earth could be considered Jesus' brother or sister. We have a command to love our neighbor as ourselves, and the good Samaritan showed us exactly who our neighbor was. We have no idea. It's just whoever's there, right? Whoever needs something. And because we're born again and God's love is in our hearts, we love any- everybody anyway. You know, that's something I'll tell you about whether you're born again. Do you love everybody? So brother could apply to almost anyone. After being again, this is, this is something. After being born again, we look around with God's spiritual eyes of love. And you know what? We can be, can we not? We can be overwhelmed by the needs in the world because it's unlimited needs. And we have limited time and resources, guys. I mean, Tyler and I experienced when we were looking into prison ministry, talking to a friend of mine. Telling us, hey, we just came out there and what, where do we, who, what do we pick to do? How do we figure out what to do? How do we know who to minister to? You know, and we don't want to miss the least of these. <laughs> we know that, right? How do we figure it out? Again, Romans 14 and Colossians 3:15. Those verses we read earlier. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. They give us direction. They give us the answer. Seek to abide in God's presence. Let him lead you moment by moment and give you peace as to what to do. That's why Paul calls us to pray without ceasing. You're always asking God what to do. And as and if we are born again, if we truly the sheep of Jesus lot, we hear his voice speak to us as we pray. Jesus in referring to himself as a good shepherd in John 10 says the sheep hear the shepherd, they hear Jesus' voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. We will hear his voice, guys. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they won't follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. You know, we just got to trust God in this. I mean, really trust God. You know, we must trust not in our ability to hear but in God's ability to communicate. 
God wants you to know something, you're going to know it. You won't have a doubt. You'll have a peace. You'll know, this is what I'm supposed to do. And he will enable us to hear. And we will hear his voice. And we will have peace. And he will give us direction in the moments. And it's a great, that is so cool. When you know the Lord's leading you. As born again Christians, like the sheep, we just truly love everybody. Including the least and the lowest and even our enemies. Even the, think of the worst person. I mean, you know there's love in you. If you're a born and Christian, you, you, you got to pray for that. You may not hang out with them or anything, but... And then why? Because Romans 5, 5 tells us God's love has been poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. And God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. The fact that we are born again will be evidenced by the love of God that is written within us, following, I mean, flowing out in very practical ways to the world around us, especially to the least of these. The rapture ready. Love, pray for, and seek to minister to everyone, especially the least and lowest among us. So in conclusion, when you know God, when you're born again, you have God speaking through us, to us through his word, when we're being led by God's spirit, then we will naturally be into good works to expand the kingdom of God. It'll be the joy of our life. Amen? And we will be loving and ministering to hurting people and the downtrodding. It's in our spiritual DNA after we're born again. A lot of times, like the sheep, we won't even realize we're doing it. And we will be anticipating with joy the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be ready for Jesus' return. Close with the words of the late, great Mr. Larry Norman. His classic, The Outlaw Song. It's one of my favorite songs. People are all in this song. Everybody's, you know, got speculations about who Jesus is. And Larry says, Some say he was the Son of God, a man above all men, because he came to save his people and to set them free from sin. And that's who I believe he is. Because that's who I believe. I think we should get ready because it's almost time to leave.